In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom, and I have the distinct pleasure of having not one, but two co-hosts on the Perspectrum tonight. So Nathan is taking this week fully off from the Perspectrum for only like the second or third time ever in in our 60-episode history. And I have, um, as co-hosts, my twin brother, Taylor Bloom, and his partner, uh, Scout Backus, on the show. Hi. Hi. Oh, I'm so excited to have you both on. We've got an awesome episode um, lined up for both of you. Um, but first, before we get started, why don't you both tell us just a little bit about yourselves. We'll get into it some more in the first segment, but just a little background um, just to get started. Cool. Um, so I'm Scout. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am based in New York City with Taylor. Um, I'm an actor and I guess dance slash movement artist at this moment kind of writer but not usually um love dogs and that's it (laughs) (laughs) that is a well-rounded human being that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh i'm taylor um gosh i'm uh i'm michael's twin and uh i i'm uh, an actor and a musician and um all-around cool guy. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Can vouch for that. Yeah, these are two of my my favorite people in the world. Oh, so I'm yay. so excited to have them on the show. Um, but first, before we get into what will undoubtedly be an excellent episode, we are going to start with with um, the shitty, shitty reality of of today, which is the COVID numbers. So uh, at this point, 73.1 million people have contracted COVID in the world. That's up from 68.8 million seven days ago, which is a 6.25% increase, or about 4.3 million new cases in one week. So far, 1.63 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 1.55 million last week, which is about a 5.2% increase in total deaths, or about an increase of uh, 280,000 deaths in one week. In the U.S., as usual, things are worse. Uh, At this point, 16.9 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 15.4 million seven days ago, which is about a 9.7% increase, or about 1.5 million new cases in the last seven days. So in the last seven days, the U.S. has made up 35% of the world's new cases. Again, the U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population. So as we've, as we've illustrated throughout um, our coverage of this topic on this show, we're just desperately, desperately behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so far in the U.S., 308,000 people have died, which is up from 290,000 a week ago which is a 6.2% increase, or about 18,000 new deaths in seven days. So we've done it. We're over 2,500 deaths per day. 
And for the past few days, we've been over 3,000 deaths a day, which is more than the number of Americans who died on 9-11 every single fucking day. At this rate, by Valentine's Day, 35 million people will have gotten COVID, which is 11% of the U.S. population, and half a million people will have died unless we can somehow change the trajectory of this thing. And so that's what we're trying to do with the vaccine. Mm. Suddenly, American exceptionalism takes on a chilling new meaning. I know. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, I think actually, like, that's really true. Like, mm-hmm. I think not only are we exceptionally bad at this, I think the things that make Americans feel American make them bad at this. Yeah. Like right. not following the rules. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I, I went on Ted Cruz's Twitter today for like some reason. <laughs> looking for a laugh. Looking for some entertainment. Um, and some true crime. <laughs> he recounts his own guys, killings. Zodiac <laughs> killer. We've cracked it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I read a tweet that that um, was was quoting uh, a, a Canadian like news site, and uh, it said that Canada just announced it'll provide a new COVID vaccine, um, which is great. And they said um, they're planning to donate excess supplies to other countries. Um, yeah. And then Ted Cruz said, "That's great. Just out of curiosity, which country was it that developed the vaccine? Wonder why." And it's like the United States didn't fucking develop. The vaccine, you idiot. And I'm like, yeah. like that American exceptionalism of just like grasping at straws just to like get mm. first place somehow. I'm like, we're getting first place in other place like areas right now, <laughs> yeah. Ted. Like, yeah. we don't need to worry about trying to like gun for, you know. Yeah. Ugh, it's just so, yeah. So. Yeah. First across the finish line for the vaccine is a partnership one with a German biotech firm. <laughs> um, exactly. Without funding yeah. from the United States government. Yeah. Yes, yes. It couldn't be less American. <laughs> yes, by two Turkish immigrants who are living in Germany. Like, there's nothing. We're not, we're, we're taking yeah. a backseat here, Ted. Anyways. Yeah. But. Which is like totally chill, yeah. right? Like, it's that's fine. fine. It's it's such a pride thing, too. And it's just like, yeah. gotta, you know, gotta, gotta have your like two cents in, you know? Yeah. It's stupid. I totally agree. And it's really, it is sad. Like, I want, I like being independent mm-hmm. as an individual. Mm-hmm. I like the way that we value thinking independently and acting independently and our freedoms and liberties and things like that. Like personally, I really like that, but it makes mm-hmm. it, and, and I like th- that our um, distributed form of government across like the federal, state and local systems is the way it is and the things that is set up about it, but it does make it uniquely difficult yeah. to tackle things as a, as a whole group of people. Yeah, it is. There's like no guideline and yeah, yeah. it's fucking stupid. But. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, all right. And that'll be our, we'll finish talking about COVID yeah. there because it's too depressing and we've got like way more interesting, uh, in some ways uplifting, in some ways terrifying mm-hmm. things. To talk about <laughs> so to start off, we wanted to talk a bit about um, the reality of the COVID pandemic in the United States for artists, mm-hmm. because I happen to have two artists as co-hosts on the show, 
Um, and so we wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. So I think like personally, I'll take a little bit more of a back seat, more of like a question thing, but I'll do my best to relate as far as I can both of your experiences to my own and what I hope are the more general experiences of our audience um, as we kind of talk, talk through all of this. Yeah. So I guess first off, um, just to kind of set the stage, uh, this is a really hard time to be an artist and I'm, and I won't speak for you guys, but um, I assume you agree. <laughs> but especially for like performing artists, yeah. um, unemployment for performing artists has increased from 1.7% in January 2020 to 27.4% in May, um, which is a really way more drastic um, swing than, than other industries. So unemployment overall mm -hmm. in January was 3.6%. Was and in May, it was 13%. Mm. So you've seen just a tremendous number of artists, specifically performing artists, become either unem like unemployed or, or you know, unable to perform. So I guess to start off, just like what has your experience been like um, kind of against that backdrop as you've kind of, as like things have shut down and, and your experience as an artist, your experience as just someone like having to, to, to face um, economic challenge and hard, hardship and mm -hmm. things like that? I think when it, when, uh, you know, COVID things really started to, you know, set into our reality, I guess. Um, I, you know, I had a few like artistic things lined up that I was like really, you know, looking forward to, but like a lot of people did. Mm. And at first I was like, personally like kind of anxious about like <laughs> like losing my ability to like do it because I like wasn't in practice mm. in the way that like we're told we, we practice our, our art form as like theater artists like you go to class you go to auditions you audition for things da 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 da, da. Um, so I was like kind of in a scramble at the beginning because I was like well fuck I don't have any of these things I guess I'll, my sense of self is just gonna like wither away mm. um, and then I took this I took this very interesting class from a from a, um, another artist through this theater um, that was a virtual class because all of these theaters were doing this amazing thing where they were you know setting up these free um, you know t talk talkbacks with a pretty pretty prolific artists and one of the artists that we were talking to started like breaking down how we can like transform theater for like the age of zoom and like how hmm. can we you know do all this stuff what is like a new theater platform look like and I was kind of like it doesn't look like fucking anything yeah like yeah, that yeah. that's that I kind of was hit with that and I was like I'm not a doctor like you like at the end of the day we're not needed and so if I am in a place of discomfort artistically someone's not going to die because of it and like that mm. was just a pretty stark realization I came to which is uncomfortable and like doesn't feel good um but you know as it's progressed I feel like we've seen some pretty good um some really interesting uses of Zoom and like live stream and I think people are getting really creative with the resources that they have 
Um, hmm. Which I think, you know, like harkens back to like Shakespeare time where Shakespeare just wrote hmm. plays in a space where they, you know, they were able to go and just like use the tools that they have. And like while our tools look very different now, I feel like people are getting a little more creative. I have, when I first like was anxious about it, I was like applying for all these auditions and like one of the upsides, I guess, is now I'm like, well, if I don't want to do it, I'm not going <laughs> to, it's not going to be worth my time now if it's going to be like a FaceTime or a Zoom thing. My experience has been um, a little different, I would say. Um, I, you know, the first few weeks, we, we're very fortunate in that we, you know, we live in New York City um, and I think at the beginning of March, right after we had moved into a, a, a new apartment, um, we sort of fled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, it, it, you know, it may, be, it may sound like an intense term, but, you know, New York was in bad shape and a lot yeah. of people and were not able to leave. You know, yeah. a lot of people had to sit there and ride out the storm. Um, I remember having conversations like, are there going to be runs on the supermarket? And like, yeah. will there be groceries coming into the city? Like, I think we forget yeah. to some degree how uncertain those times were, um, yeah. and how like scary it was. Absolutely, you know, sure. I remember yeah. going out to the grocery store and stocking up on stuff that we n- don't eat because it was yeah. non-perishable. <laughs> like I was like, I better get some rice there. and beans. Yeah. <laughs> like, we we have so eat that. much rice. Um, <laughs> but we're fortunate because shortly after. Um, things started to look serious, we were able to come and spend uh, all of the spring and most of the summer, or at least the beginning of the summer, with yeah. Scout's parents. Um, and they happen to live very near where you and, and, and Brie live, and mom and dad, and you know uh, other family members who live in the area. Um, and more importantly, in terms of a, a conversation about my artistic interests, um, there is space here that we happen to be sitting in right now that I was able to use as sort of a private creative space for mm. uh, music and recording, which is sort of the uh, vein that my creative blood has been flowing in uh, for the past eight months or yeah. so. Um, so it's definitely been something of an, actually a silver lining for me of this difficult circumstance is, you know... I have been able to devote time and energy to a creative process that has been on the back burner for me for years in a way that I never could have had we not, you know, fled New York and had not all this been going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is that for a good period of the spring and summer, um, we were able to collect that lovely Heroes Act unemployment booster, um, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately ran out. Ran out. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a nice way of yeah. putting it. Um, but the long and short of it is that uh, I think I have been the exception amongst our friends in terms of being fortunate uh, in being able to, you know, focus creative energies in a way outside of trying to adapt theater to Zoom. You know. Yeah. So many yeah. people have have like you know, had to follow that path. And mm-hmm. I think to varying degrees of success, but I don't think anyone finds it nearly as gratifying as as doing actual theater or actual live performing, you know? Yeah. Kind of going off what you were saying, I feel like when I, I just said that and I was like, it, everything fucking sucks. But yeah. <laughs> um, at the beginning, so I, I'm like fortunate to be kind of in a, in a group of um, uh, queer artists, um, and uh, two of my really 
close friends run a theater called Sacred Circle Theater Company, which focuses on queer and feminist and trans uh, performance. And Mm -hmm. it's a movement-based company, and usually we go into, like, a teeny tiny rehearsal space. We do, like, a movement warm-up or something, and then we uh, do whatever we need to do, and it's very based on touch, and it's, uh, like, connecting. And so Sacred Circle um, started doing virtual movement jams, Hmm. Which is interesting. And the first few times, and I was like part of like the testing group, me and um, a friend of mine. And at first I was like, this is really depressing. This is making me want something that isn't possible. Exactly. And I think um, uh, Raymond and Milo, the two people who who run the company, got really creative with the language that was being used around Zoom. Hmm. Um, Instead of ignoring it or trying to pretend like it, it wasn't there, like mm. referring to it in in the in the exercise so like dealing with the reality i think that's the problem i have with some zoom theater they like try to act like it's not there yeah. and i'm like let's not we can do like a shakespeare play or uh, over zoom but let's not pretend like it's not there um yeah and i uh, something to what you were saying i've been like writing more um and i've been writing for like my close friends which is great um, and I think through that and, and through doing like readings over Zoom but not full performances and just sending stuff to people because I love them and want them to be a part of it at some point in the future. Um, I guess like my idea of like success and uh, artistic worth have changed a lot now that I don't mm. have someone sitting across from me. I love like I love auditioning. I like the process of aud- auditioning in front of casting directors but it's like kind of flipping what success or validation uh, means to me, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, I think a lot of people have undergone something of a uh, um, an osmosis or a transformation of sorts as artists because I think what this experience has thrown into deep relief for a lot of people is how honestly, like, self-centered yep. um, the... the art form is yeah. um, like we sort of think of ourselves as like you know we're, we're contributing to society and at a certain point you are like you know you are sort of like entertaining the masses if you're performing in a theater that has 1500 people in right. it eight shows a week um, but most people we know that's not their experience yeah. it's certainly not our experience um, and so I think what I saw uh, a lot of my friends go through it during the early months of this whole thing was this sort of existential crisis of like, like, is this what I need to be doing with my life? Yeah. Because mm. it wasn't nearly as, um, it didn't feel as meaningful to them as they thought it was because it didn't, because it was like, well, no one's like, like the world Without is in crisis audience. right now and we're not needed, yeah. you know? Yeah, there's no audience, exactly. But I Michael. think in a way it's kind of a good thing because, um, I think it's, you know, it's better for people to realize, like, oh, um, I'm not just doing this because I think it's important, like, because the world needs to hear my voice. It's like, no, no, like, I like doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. that's that's kind of a positive thing that's come out of it, is this readjustment of our understanding of why we're in it in the yeah. first place. Yeah. You know, we're not public servants 100%. We're public servants, like, once you reach a certain point in your career, then, yeah, like, you're well-loved sure. and you bring people joy and happiness. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, when you're, when you're like working 45 hours a week at your day job and trying to go to auditions, like you're not doing anybody any favors. Right. 
you're like not seeing your family and skipping out on your friends' yeah. birthday parties because you're exhausted because you're trying to make something yeah. of yourself. But it's because you love it, right? right? Yeah, like yeah. I didn't get into this when, you know, I didn't play pretend when I was four because I wanted to like heal someone. Like that's yeah, the yeah. that's the core of like a lot of artistic stuff is like getting in touch with like inner child shit and everything. Right. Like, mm. <laughs> like <laughs> let's not pretend like it's, I mean, I feel like people will disagree, but I, I really just, when I was hit with the, oh wait, like, this doesn't fucking matter right now. This is not the necessity yeah. right now. It yeah. was actually pretty freeing. Like it wasn't like, oh, then I'm not important. It's like, well, then I can just enjoy it for what it is and like write stupid plays for my friends and like watch movies I want to watch instead of being hard on myself about like, oh, am I working on it? Like, am I mm. doing it right? Like it's really changed. Like when um we were in New York because we're in Virginia right now for uh, holiday things, I'm I was in, like, a COVID-friendly acting class with our acting teacher. Um, mm. And I could feel, like, my way of working changing a little bit. And, like, mm. it's just, like, not being so life or death. And in that, I don't know, like, that's it's literally not life or death. But Yeah. So. Yes. I, yeah. The last thing I'm just going to say yeah. is, um, you know, I j just described a moment ago, uh, like, a scenario where you're working all the time and you're missing out on your personal relationships in order... Like, you're basically putting off your day-to-day -day life in order to try to get to a place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think maybe what... Like, uh, I would like to think that members of our, you know, artistic theatrical community are taking this experience as an opportunity to find ways of enjoying your day-to-day -day life like I personally feel as if I have sort of put a lot of parts of my life on hold over the past few years to try to get somewhere professionally yeah and one thing that that for me has come out of this whole situation is um posting songs on YouTube on a regular basis and it's great because it's it's not like it's not like I'm performing for thousands of people live every week and it's not like it's making a huge difference in the world, mm -hmm. but I'm in charge of it. I am control. I have yeah. control over it. I have some agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it definitely does make a difference for a few people, you know, like th there's, there's, there are people oh, who yeah. comment and totally they, does. they're like, this is wonderful. Thank you. It's like three or four minutes of peace in my day. I appreciate it. And that's like, that's awesome. Yeah. That feels great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's in, so that is a lot of awesome stuff. I'm like, I'm like, my head is like spinning over here from like <laughs> all of these different things. Like, so Sorry. like there are a few, no, no, there are a few like, like key themes that I want to kind of draw out because I think they're really, in some ways, really relatable. In some ways, they're really interesting. Okay. So, so one is um, like adaptability. And, and specifically, both of you have called out that not only has your way of doing the art you were doing before changed. So Scout, you talked specifically about online Zoom classes and you talked about people trying to adapt what they did before to Zoom mm -hmm. um, and other like virtual platforms. But both of you have explored new or explored more fully other types of art and performance. Like rather than trying to just go and do the same thing but different. Yeah. Like Taylor, you've been working on music. You've been working on this album. Scout, you were talking about like writing plays for your friends and doing things like that. And I think that's like 
I think that's really interesting and in, in a lot of ways, like a lesson. Yeah. Um, like, I think, I think that a lot of us have tried to make life as close as possible to life before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Sure. Which, like, is not surprising, but probably futile mm. and disappointing. Yeah. Um, so like maybe the lesson is like, like take this time to explore and find and, and do, and do your best while allowing your, you know, while, while like making space for yourself to like feel shitty sometimes. Yeah. Um, like, like trying to like explore new ways of finding fulfillment and satisfaction, Yeah. which kind of leads me to the second theme that I wanted to draw out, which is expectation setting. Because both of you talked about how, like, how much going into a virtual environment is disappointing because your expectations are that totally irrationally, not just for you, but for all of us, that it will be like being in person, that it'll, that it would, you know, that, it, that no matter what, like, none of you, none of us have watched theater on <laughs> Zoom before. Yeah. So our expectations of theater are of theater. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. Which is... And, and, and theater, virtual experiences of theater and dance and other performing arts are typically crappy even before the pandemic because they're often, and, and they are specifically trying attempts to replicate in-person experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you, you take a video from the back of a balcony on a proscenium stage so it looks like you're sitting in the balcony of a proscenium stage. Yeah. And so like, this is a problem that the performing arts has not solved before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, may, it you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a pretty large theater was, was like kind enough to um, offer recordings, like really high quality mm. recordings of very famous plays that have been on that stage for the last like five years or something. But we watched a, a recording of one and I literally turned it off and I started crying because I was like, I was so mad. I was like, I don't even know, like this sucks so hard, but I don't know if it's because it was a bad show or if it's mm. like recording. So like my sense of like reality was like, fucked with yeah. and I was like that's sure. a, that you know people are making attempts but like you're so right about adjusting expectation or like not really having expectations at all or mm -hmm. like not it's just yeah. not the same it's not no, like it's let's not. let's deal with it like I'm I'm like there's a name for uh when storytelling and acting and stuff like that are put on screen it's called movies and tv yeah it's movies and tv and it's film. trying sure. to make theater adapted to that environment is in my opinion foolhardy yeah. Like taking filming live performance is called a movie. Well, yeah. and when you're making a movie of a play on stage, what you have made is a bad movie. So do you think but that but then you are aren't you like bringing in your what your expectation of like film is into like a Zoom space because to me like Zoom so there are like now three different sects of like also, mm. I don't think theater and film can be compared because one is a visual form and one is like a, a an, an like an energetic like that's it. like one is for the filmmaker and one is for the actor. Like, so if, if mm. that's what you're saying, would you say that 
the filmed performance at the National Theater is theater or film? Well, I don't. Well, I went in. What I was trying to say was like I went in expecting it to be theater, but because certain things don't read on camera when mm-hmm. it's like in a large, the National Theater's huge. So like, yeah. things are gonna be different in terms of, uh, like choices that people make, I guess. Yeah. But like it's, right now it just feels like they're like people have been making like I saw this funny video about like <laughs> some actor I follow like posted like here's like um, my Zoom acting class that you can take like making fun of it because it's just so depressing right now. And, and the other thing that I think I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I've seen this some places. I don't know how often or common this sen- common this sentiment is. Mm-hmm. But have you guys noticed that people are outraged that like, it's. I think the arts are in a tough spot, especially the performing arts. Like, yeah. they they serve a function in society, which to your point is to like uh, entertain people, that they can't serve right now, mm. and they shouldn't yeah. be serving in in these live performance contexts. And so it's really tough. Like, it seems to me like a prime example of like a a something that needs like a New Deal style support during this kind of thing. Yeah. Because. It's, it's almost like unemployment. Like, we don't want people to go to work. We don't want performing <laughs> artists to be performing in person yes. right now. That's and true. And the, mag- the, the number of people that go to in, in-person live performances aren't going. Yeah. Like, like sh- you'll get some people that, that tune in for a live, or for like a live stream show or something like that. Yeah. But not nearly in the numbers that we saw before. Definitely not. That's and so true. Which makes sense, because of like the things we've talked about. Like, yeah. people... It's a lot to expect of people to adapt their expectations of theater to a Zoom environment mm-hmm. or to try, like, for, especially because such a large portion of the performing arts viewing community is olds. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, that's yeah. a lot of adaptation mm-hmm. to expect. So I guess I wonder, like, have you noticed people being outraged that that they're not getting as much support? Like, I've seen a lot of things like, well, you you come to the artists when you need when everything's the worst and you need us most. Yeah. Um, yep. So like, yeah. What do you think about that? I just mm-hmm. want your so uh, thoughts. I have some thoughts because <laughs> because um, and I'm not I'm not criticizing, but I'm mostly like thinking about like Broadway because Broadway mm. is the standard. Yeah, that's kind of what I had. For I yeah, too, for yeah. what most of America thinks of live theater. Yeah. And I was like a little bit miffed when I went on my social when my went on my Instagram and all everyone was posting about how sad they were that Broadway wasn't going to open up January 1st or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like okay, that that is upsetting and like Broadway's a huge source of like jobs and and entertainment for a lot of people Mm -hmm. but i was like um what 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 about like i feel like the first theaters that we're gonna need are like community theaters and Mm. like smaller venues because that's gonna be the safest way to get your fix or whatever Mm. and i'm i'm really hoping that like the gap between like broadway success which is super commercial and like the smaller like more underground theaters specifically in new york and around the united states because there are some amazing regional theaters in the rest of the world the uh, rest of the country that like nobody knows about um Mm. i'm hoping that that mentality will like change a little bit um 
I don't know if that answered your question, but I'm like mostly thinking about the reaction to like, just like not getting our way. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it, yeah, it's, yeah. like, it's just, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I think that's another, I think that's another pandemic theme is like, it is really hard mentally and emotionally to separate outrage at the situation from outrage at like, I don't know, the people, the way people are acting in this situation. Mm. Like, oh my God. Yeah. COVID sucks. Mm. Being locked down sucks. Mm. But like what we need to do the least is blame the people around us for it or divide ourselves because, oh, like one person doesn't think Broadway should open up during a pandemic <laughs> and another person does. True. You know, it's like it's like it the situation sucks and it's really hard to separate that from our experience of the people and things in the situation. That's so true. That's yeah, so well put. Okay, and now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Taylor, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, I'm so glad you asked. We do Tips for Good every week uh, because I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, me, my, oh, my. <laughs> um, and also, uh, I guess I should mention that it's more of a parenthetical, but to make the world a better place. Oh, thank goodness you ended it that way, because that was going to be the most self-centered tip for the week ever. <laughs> uh, but actually, wow. that's actually a little on brand, because today's tip for good is very much about the self. It is yes. about self-focus. Yes, yeah. indeed. There is uh, a, a segment of this uh, where um, an eating disorder is mentioned. So for anyone uh, who might be sensitive to that um, a material, just uh, skip on over it. So um, <laughs> what we kind of wanted to talk about was, you know, at the beginning of this whole thing and throughout it, and for many, many years prior, uh, there, there's a lot of um, focus and emphasis in social media and yeah, yeah. in non-social media on uh, fitness as a means of like, you know, upping happiness. your social status and, and, and happiness, but yeah. happiness in terms of your perception and, you know, getting Vanity that eight and, pack and yeah, all that stuff. Totally. Um, and uh, we just had some other ideas we wanted to discuss uh, about our relationship to fitness and particularly the relationship between fitness and mental health and emotional health yeah. and how difficult it can be to maintain that, but how important it is to maintain it during a situation like this. Yeah. Uh, before I'll say anything, I, I know that I've got a little bit of, well, I've got a lot of privilege, but I have some thin privilege when it comes to talking about uh, fitness and body image and everything. So, um, but one of, one thing that I have, has been really helpful for me in, uh, during this time, um, cause I was having like a lot of stress about, cause I saw it on Instagram. I saw the, like the, yeah. thir you know, the cleanses and everything and like, <laughs> Yeah. Just like this, I was like, you know, Newton invented calculus during the, the plague. Oh so. my god! I was like, yes, let's talk about how Shakespeare wrote King Lear. You're like, yeah. stupid shit. And then it's like Shakespeare wrote King Lear, and you can lose twenty pounds. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. why are we talking what about like god. why are we talking about scarcity and embodying scarcity and embodying like smallness when like mm. there's a there's an illness going on at the moment and like it just mm. like and like. Anyways, so as someone who's uh, struggled with an eating disorder in the past, I was nervous about COVID, spending a lot of time with my body by myself, all these horrible 
thoughts come up during anxious times. Um, and then my friend, Milo, uh, and Raymond, the two people who also do Sacred Circle, turned me on to this thing called a Pony Sweat, which is based in L.A., and it's uh, run by this person named Amelia, and it's basically, like, 80s aerobics, kind of, um, with, like, punk and, like, rock songs, um, and the whole thing is uh, she yells, fuck the moves a lot, which is, like... <laughs> the practice it's a it's a movement practice so you're not doing it to like get in shape you're doing it to like get in touch with your body see how you're how you're feeling uh in a more like high impact uh way and it's like Hmm. also great for like it's literally great for children too because it's just like coming from such a like place of playfulness and like Hmm. bedroom dancing that like there are many times where i like totally i'm never in a in a space of you know oh i gotta like push through these squats I'm like, I can push through these squats if I feel the willingness to summon whatever strength mm. is going to take it, but it's becoming less for me. It's not perfect for me, mm. but it's becoming less about, well, I ate, I need to use exercise as punishment, which I've seen exercise mm. used as so much. And like learning that there's really no connection between what you eat and, and <laughs> how you exercise. It's much more about brain and body than yeah. it is what you're inserting into your body and what you're expelling. Um, it's been really helpful. So that's been one body practice that's been really helpful for me. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like, I've been, I've been vibing with this concept that Taylor has talked about with me a, a number of times of like practicing something. Mm. Of yeah. like, he, like Taylor's talked about practicing yoga. And if you want, Tate, you can talk some about that. But like for me, like I've been trying to bring that to more and more things. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like my exercise has always been end state goal oriented. Sure. Where like I like what I'm gonna run a mile this fast, yeah. or I'm gonna go this far, or rather than like, I found my most successful long term, like s- like series of of enjoyable exercise have been when I've been like I'm gonna go for a run because I feel like running. And yeah. the more you do that, mm. the more be- the yes. better that is. And so the goal is just do the thing for some time until you feel like maybe not doing the thing yeah, anymore. Yes. Exactly. And like, and that like becomes a much more, for me anyway, a much more sustainable thing. And to me, that that kind of is, is summarized in like a practice approach. Totally. Uh, yeah, I think that's very that's a good way to approach it. Um, and it's it's kind of hard if you are not already in the habit of practicing some sort of um, physical exercise Mm -hmm. to think of it that way. Um, But the benefit of thinking of it that way, if you can just, if you can just try it out a few times and don't push it and and just whatever the exercise is that you're doing, whether you're, you know, going swimming or going for a walk. Yeah. um, What will inevitably happen if you don't, you know, ride yourself so hard, if you don't approach Mm -hmm. it, like I'm going to run three miles or bust. Yeah. If you just yeah. go for it and see how it feels, I what will happen or what has happened to me in my experience is you come home and you feel really good because your body's filled with adrenaline mm-hmm. and your body's filled with endorphins yeah. and your mood is literally improved. And then what happens yeah. is the next time, at least again, totally speaking from personal experience, but the next time you're like, man, I'm kind of feeling low. My first thought now is, oh, maybe I'll just like go ride my bike a little bit. Yeah. For fun. Yeah. For fun. And you end up feeling really good. And yeah. it doesn't have to be about gains or getting cut or, like, trying to work off the cookie you ate two days ago. 
It can yeah. just be about like, man, I could really go for some feeling good right now. Yeah. So let me ride a bike. Like a let me go for a walk. Let treat. me do some breathing. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's a great way to think of it. And, and yeah. it's really smart of you, Mike, to apply that practice mentality to other things in life. I was just thinking like, yeah, I'm just practicing making a curry. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's kind exactly. of fun. Like, yes. oh, man, that turned out pretty well that time, but I think next time I need to do this. Yeah. You know? The, yeah. the change of language, the way you talk to yourself about, especially when it comes to your body, mm -hmm. is so important. Um, like, I was just talking to my therapist about changing the way that I talk about working out, working on, working, working. He was like, well, what if we change the term to either practicing or mastering? And when you're mastering something, mm. you're just being like, I'm mastering, you know, this plank right now. Where like, and not, and not getting ahead of yourself, mm. you know, like, and sure. this meditation app I like to have when I'm running is like, you know, don't even look at the mileage. They're just numbers. They're like literally, and mm. he gives like the definition of like what a mile is. And it means it's not about, and it does. Right. It's not like three miles, you know, means that you know, you're a better person because yeah. of this, 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 and this. It's literally just like it's right. a number that that tells you a distance, and it's like, oh, yeah, cool, <laughs> you know. That's such a that's such a deep point because, literally, the function of a unit like that is to translate and compare things across things, and yeah. the what you, and the goal should not be to compare yourself. Yeah. And so, exactly. And, and so if you need miles, you're probably not doing it right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing with you know, ever, uh, Amelia says in Ponies, but it's like compare equals despair. Like, mm. <laughs> and if I it love. rhymes, oh, so it's, it's true. If it rhymes, it's true. Amelia's a poet as well. <laughs> yes. Nice. And that's tips for good. Yes, tips for good. So for our next segment, um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. It has been on my list of things to um, discuss pretty much since we started this show, and it is uh, gender, which is super broad, um, but we'll obviously break that down. And this is a topic that I approach as um, Novice is probably too ambitious about my own level of understanding <laughs> of this because like the th the thing is it's a weird it's a weird thing because mm -hmm. it's something that all of us experience all the time and most of us don't think about. Very true. Mm, that's such a good way to put that, Michael. So, we are going to talk about gender. We're going to start off by kind of talking about some of um just the uh, basics in the background. So with that, I will toss it over to my co-hosts. So, Scout, you want to get us started? Yes. So I have some very basic definitions that are, I think, thrown around, not thrown around, but maybe convoluted when mm. uh, one is speaking about gender. So here they are. Yeah, what go I was ahead. just going to say, it, 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 they will serve to to make the conversation that much easier for anyone yeah. for whom this is a, a dark area of misunderstanding. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, filed under gender in their sort of brain is male, female. Well, End of discussion. And, yeah. and so this is just a good way to understand the ongoing evolution of the understanding of gender that's based so, on these definitions. That's so true. And I will say that I can understand, I mean, it's, I mean, there are so many... I, I was looking at literally Merriam-Webster today, and, and the and the definition is 
binary. And mm. that's just not it. Okay, so here are some literal terms. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the best place to okay. start. Okay, we're going to get really boring. Okay, so your sex, when someone refers to someone's sex, they are talking about your, biolo- your biology, the parts you have, what you were assigned at birth, um, uh, the male-female uh, term is usually based on sex. Um, mm. And that is the thing that's, you know, usually referred to as penis or vagina. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and that is different from gender, and, and the two are often conflated. Yes. So the way that the three main definitions that we're going to talk about at the moment are sex, sexual, sexual orientation, and gender. Mm. Your sex, if you had like a little gingerbread man, the sex would be right in between the legs. How do you decorate a gingerbread man? Just Jesus. like that. <laughs> <laughs> gingerbread uh. man, woman, or them. <laughs> if you have a gingerbread ginger them. Oh, a ginger them. That's so I'm cute. I'm just imagining what Lord Farquaad would break <laughs> out. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, you God. can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread them. <laughs> the shit the golf drop buttons. <laughs> oh, this Anyways, is awesome. This is great. Okay, so your sexual orientation is, if you looked at the gingerbread man again, it would be their heart. Who you love, who you're attracted to, um, who you find stimulating to be around, that's your sexual orientation. Uh, sexual orientation, gay, pansexual, bisexual, uh, those kind of terms that uh, give you an in- in- inclination as to what kind of person someone is going to be attracted to. Um, so then we're in gender, which I said initially is like the gingerbread man brain, but I'm like, uh, it's heart and brain, I feel. Um, so gender is the feeling of identity within yourself. Um, and that differs greatly from person to pers- person. Uh, one of my favorite uh, trans uh, speakers, who's this person named Alok, who's incredibly intelligent, mm. um, uh, talks about the fact that there are as many genders as there are people on Earth. Um, mm. So it's all about your expression. It's all about how you're feeling on the inside. And I am a little bit sticky on like gender definition because it's so different for everyone. And to mm. me, that de- that definition is something that helped me realize um, some of the gender feelings that I personally was going through. Um, But society, gender is also widely understood as the binary that we find within society. Uh, Girls wear pink, boys wear blue, boys Mm. like cars, girls like Barbies, all of these things that put us in just two distinct separate boxes. Um, And as we're learning more about um, gender expressions that have always been there but have not been given voice, um, we're learning that there are a lot of in-betweens, out-of-the-boxes, you know, yes-ands. Uh, yeah. Um, it also bears mentioning, just to uh, avoid any possibility of confusion, yeah. that um, sex, sexual orientation, and gender are uh, do not share any sort of causational relationship. Yeah. It's like a person can have any combination of assigned sex at birth versus gender identification yeah. plus 
who they're attracted yeah. to. And it's not like I've, I've heard a lot of people be confused by, oh, yeah. this person's non-binary, so does that mean that they're attracted to girls? Mm. And it's like, no, there are three distinct sort of yeah. characteristics yeah. of an individual. There's also a fourth term, which is gender expression. Hmm. Mm. And I have a little bit interesting. of... Really interesting. Really interesting. That really opens it up which for is me. Really that's like, the whole other thing. That's the big thing. So yeah. I, I had a little like question mark next to this term because I found it in... Um, I put I put some resources on on the on our Google Doc, but I was uh, finding a lot of different definitions for gender expression, and I was they were yeah. all like rubbing me the wrong way for some reason. Um, but gender expression is an outward appearance or outward appearance expression, but it's like totally up to you. Hmm. Um, but that can be anything, and this is like something that I found which I loved. Uh, what uh, one thing someone is solely based on a consistent doesn't necessarily correspond with assigned sex at birth or gender identity. Um, for example, like a like a good negative gender expression, like example would be um, like when I first came out, I was like, as like non-binary, uh, trans non-binary. I was like, well, then now I have to keep my hair short. So mm. nobody misgenders me. And so everyone knows that I, <laughs> I live outside the gender binary. And it's like, no it's like should be more freeing than that like i like the whole, the whole the <laughs> you didn't <laughs> trade the shackles for the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah. and i'm like unfortunately like less informed people will always misgender me and you know what whether or not i have my hair a certain way <laughs> so yeah. that's a that's a good gender expression fail example mm. so. <laughs> that's okay so that's really interesting yeah. so i've all right so i've got a couple thoughts Go first ahead. of all just dealing with the tripartite Yes. Uh, setup that we originally started with. Mm -hmm. So leaving aside for the moment gender expression. Yeah. Even if you just start with that three-part system, mm -hmm. uh, gender identity, uh, uh, sexual orientation, and um, like, what's the right term? Biological sex, a sex assigned at birth, anything like that? Um, I I think uh, assigned sex at birth is is great. Yeah, that's probably this. That's probably the safest one because yeah. that in, is inclusive. But even with that, even if there are only two parts of each one of those things, right? Even if it's just male, female, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, that's eight combinations, which is way more than almost anyone who is a layman or who is just a random person on the street yeah. who hasn't thought about these things would think actually exist. But the fact is that I think as you guys have indicated that these things are uh, a continuum with, with yeah. undefined endpoints. Um, mm -hmm. so that what you actually have is an infinite, at least three-dimensional matrix <laughs> of, of yeah. different combinations, Absolutely. which yeah. to your point, Scout, basically means that, surprise, surprise, you have to deal with people as individuals. Yep. Um, now that is hard, right? Like, yeah. I don't think we should definitely, we should like write off the fact that human beings are cognitively limited mm. in that we are set up neurologically to categorize the things in our environment. Yeah. Because that's how we make sense of the world. Yeah. Because a chair is a chair and it's got chairness <laughs> and a table is a table and it's not a chair. Yeah. Right. Um, and so like this is inherently uh, something that kind of, not, not this particular subject, not sex itself, but, but, the idea of non-categorization 
mm-hmm. is a, a cognitively challenging thing to do. Um, and 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 the fact is that our society at large is set up not to recognize these things, totally. not to under not to not to account for the differences um, in these things. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention is like n- now that we bring in this gender expression, I think that's really interesting because the way I've thought about gender before is having an, a, a personal but also a societal component. But it is really helpful to break apart those two things so that, that a gender experience is different from a gender expression. But yeah. I guess my question is like, how do you think about the difference between a gender experience and a gender expression? So rather than just gender expression, I mean, maybe gender expression is just like how you, how you dress, how you wear your clothes, sure. how you wear your hair. But it seems like it would make more sense to be like the way that gender moves through society. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess I wonder, like, how does one think about the personal experience of that versus another one? And, and there's no reason why you should know better than me, because I exist with gender. Yeah. In general, I've just thought about it less. Well, I think I have uh, two thoughts came up because I was really I was really stressed when I first came out about gender expression mm. and how uh, people would perceive me and if my gender would be honored through someone else's perception. Mm. And someone one time, I was in a, I was in a, a room and someone gave uh, their pronouns and she said, um, I, take, I take they and she instead of my pronouns are they them. And later I was talking to her and I was like, why, you know, why do you use that language? And she was like, because, like, people don't understand the levels of gender expression or how many gender multitudes that I contain. So this language right now, I will take these pronouns because these are the ones that are most, um, the easiest ones for people to accept. But I also accept that. I contain a lot more than what people expect from me. Mm. Um, Also, you brought up an interesting uh, point. So a lot of times gender in history has been used as a a colonizing tactic. Mm. So like when the uh, British first invaded uh, India, also, sidebar, like, non-binary trans, this is, like, nothing new. There's just, uh, because of social media, like, it's a more immediate way of uh, understanding it. And because, like, language is, a, like, an ever-evolving living thing, pe- sure. people have it a little more at their fingertips now, which is fantastic. Um, so, when the British invaded India, they did two things. Uh, one, they, they uh, created the sodomy law, which is, like, rampant in the Bible. They've overturned mm-hmm. that actually pretty recently and then Hmm. two they created a eunuch ordinance law uh that basically said any person who was not blatantly cis presenting a cisgendered Hmm. cisgendered means uh you identify as the assigned sex at birth Mm -hmm. so uh you're a cis woman you were born like a cis woman you're a cis man uh you have what's usually referred to as a penis Mm -hmm. you 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 feel like that's uh 
you as a person. Um, what's, uh, who was not inherently, you know, openly cisgendered. What's to be feared and killed. Uh, the term eunuch was for anyone who uh, would be called, like, an unnatural prostitute. Uh, hmm. Or addicted to having sex with men. Which is a convolution between sexual uh, uh, attraction and gender. Um, uh, so, like, societal gender things are always about putting people in boxes and always about yeah. creating a system in which people cannot move th- move freely because like uh-huh. it, it, like yeah so that was just like an example of like gender colonizing um hmm. and it's just like scary when, <laughs> when it's just like accepted as like well like men you know men are men and women are women and that's that like it's a positive thing it's not a positive thing so yeah. That comment made me realize that one of the things I said earlier was totally fucking wrong, which is that society is not set up to work with these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought back about that as, as you were talking, and I realized how superficial and superimposed gender expectation is on society. Mm-hmm. Like, like, there's no reason why gender has to be recognized in the superstructure of our <laughs> laws or, or government or interactions yeah. uh, in, any, in any discreet way. There's no mm. reason why it has to be five or six or three or two um, <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. I don't think. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of anything except people's comfort as it currently stands, which, as you indicated, very can vary greatly you know like yeah as you mentioned like these things are nothing new which i think is a great point like i think there is a mental challenge if you approach the subject of gender as having to or sexuality or sexual orientation or any of those things as having to like like put people into some boxes but you probably don't need to interact with people that way at all. Well, I found when, when the, you know, the times I've come into contact with someone like that, it's usually, like, fear-based. Sure. And it's usually because it's scary. Because yeah. a lot of people do think it's new, and new things are scary most of the yeah, time, yeah, yeah. you know. If, well, it can be new to them. Yeah, it can be new know. to them, exactly. Well, yeah. well, and and people are vilified for it, like, like... <laughs> yeah. Like we we vilify those relationships, like like specific, like probably the most the most publicized uh, like version of this is on the sexual orientation spectrum, obviously, and like like um, you know people who are gay are are viewed as often as like being like scary mm-hmm. or literally diseased or yeah. like. Only two-thirds of people in the United States think gay marriage should be a thing, yeah. which is crazy. This is 2020. Right. You know, like, yeah. I think you're right that, like, they're scary, but why? Like, who tell like who tells you that they should be scary? Well, there's a really wonderful documentary that covers trans people in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually, like, kind of scary. Disclosure is what it's called. Um and there are a number of films specifically about trans women or have trans women in them that mm. are frightening, mm. you know, such as um, 
a good example is um, Silence of the Lambs and like the main. Um, uh, uh, yes. Uh, it rubs the lotion on its skin. Yeah, guy. and it's like yeah, exactly. So there's this gender queer person, um, mm. uh, literally like taking the skin from like cis women. Yeah. Um, it's. Mm. I mean, I fucking love that movie, but I can see the problems with it. Or yeah, sure. like Dallas Buyers Club, which mm. has a cis man playing a trans woman. But okay. Um, but <laughs> has you know the minute that the trans character is no longer needed, she's murdered. Um, and her only purpose is to be a sexual object. Interesting. Or one of I've always forget the name of this movie, but it was like a, it was like in the early seventies or eighties. There's this whole scene where um, a, uh, a a cis man is having uh, is having a relationship with a trans woman, and she takes off her pants and she he vomits, and like because she is she is lying to him somehow, mm. and like so there's this level of distrust i feel in a lot of like even like trans like friendly like narratives it's like it's still like this alien thing that need that needs to be like explained somehow in the cis heteronormative way like the only way to like relate that person's transness is to show her in a in a place of like betrayal when it came to the cis man you know what i mean i don't know that That but like but like film like like shit like that or like even like Ace Ventura has some transphobic shit that like, and you don't think of like, I remember watching that movie and like as a child and absorbing Mm -hmm. that and it like now like coming up and like we absorb that shit. And if if I'm like, if someone in, you know, middle America has never seen, or they don't think they've seen a trans person sees that movie or sees, you know, the boys don't cry. Like it's going to be like, that's going to be scary. That's going to be frightening. That makes so much sense. Yeah. It reminds me of, of of other examples throughout history of how we take things that are perfectly reasonable and normal things and we otherize them and we, <laughs> yeah. we ingrain those both in our society but also into our science oh, because yes. people will talk about uh, gender dysmorphia and like as as like gender di- conditions. Yep. Right. Um, and 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 then it becomes so easy to make that an illness, and it becomes so easy to make that an evil that we should be correcting. Like even even like even autism. We talked a couple of weeks ago about, about like autism speaks mm. and its and some of the problems that it has in its pursuit of like a cure for autism as opposed to like neurological inclusivity and it's so we do it everywhere well it's so interesting yeah well the dsm-5 until 2013 the dsm-5 is like the basically like psycho uh psychological like terminology for psychologists Mm. and psychiatrists and it comes out I, i don't know the the name but like it's updated every few years sure um until 2013 there was like uh, the definition for gender dysphoria was under homosexuality. So, mm. like, it can't even... since Like, until, like, 2013. And, like, yeah. those two things, like, as I was, like, trying to say, I don't know if I did it properly, like, those don't really... Those... If, if they... If, the, if a single person wants those things to connect, they can, but, like... <laughs> that's not the... Like, gender dysphoria is not this, like... Also, like homosexuality is not something to be cured. You know what I mean? And like, 
Yeah, so it's, it's as recent no. as 2013. None, like, of, none of this stuff is to be cured. No, think, nothing. I think to go to what Michael was saying, that's a good point about all this, is yeah. that trying, like a lot of the way that our society has dealt with this sort of material, and particularly in the last probably like 50 or 70 years, trying to incorporate uh, into our scientific knowledge ways of dissecting all this stuff, we talk about it in, in, in terms of disorders or things that are curable. Whereas mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I think what a lot of people would argue, myself included, is that what needs to be cured is our perception of there being a problem. Like exactly. The, that's, that's what causes trauma. That's why there are incredibly terrifying rates of suicide among, you know, LGBTQ teens. That's why it's black not trans because, women are killed all the fucking time. It's not because they're yeah. trans. It's because they're being hated because they're trans. Mm. Yeah. Or at least that's what the messaging is. Even and if your doctor is saying, "Well, how can we fix you?" Mm. Yeah. Then you then there's hatred. You know what yeah. I mean? It's it's pretty amazing how much that aligns with like enlightenment thinking and like our past few decades of um, uh, using medicine to solve our issues and viewing. Mm deviations from a narrow conception of the norm mm. as something that we not only can but should solve yeah. which is really interesting because like enlightenment thinking would say we should make a taxonomy of all the things that there are and we should categorize them and and define them and then and then apply over that a superstructure of like a evaluate like evaluating those different groups and say like any significant deviations from the norm should be corrected yeah um mm. we're like i mean we do that with we do that with weight we do that with plastic surgery yeah. is like like we just accept that we can and should fix ourselves as opposed to accepting that we can and should accept ourselves yes. right it, it's it you bring up a great example um like a great corollary between the way that we think about um gender in, in this country, in this society, in, in the Western world, and the way that we think about weight. Um, like, a great example of how we arbitrarily come up with rules to describe mm-hmm. the norms in all these situations is like BMI. Body mass yeah. index is one of the most arbitrary and ridiculous ways of thinking about being healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, as for, to my understanding, is that, that it is essentially uh, a calculation of your height divided by your weight yeah yeah which is like the dumbest thing i've maybe ever heard (laughs) (laughs) and that's 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 exactly how we deal with gender yeah you know in such a stupid silly way that's meant to like the broadest stroke possible that can categorize everyone in in like two ways healthy unhealthy Mm -hmm. male female yeah you know yeah. Um, so a really great book that helped me come out um, mm-hmm. is a book called Sissy by uh, Jacob Tobiah. And they're this like incredible, um, really, really kind, really, really intelligent uh, person. Um, and I wrote down one of their, their, their things that they said that like resonated. I underlined it when I was first coming out and I feel like it's like applicable. Um, they said, uh, the words we use to describe something can be really important to other people, even if the differences don't make that much sense to us, and that it's just easier to listen when people teach us uh, when people teach us uh, how to talk about things that are important to them. A lot of times, 
the, it's uh, um, the language is very overwhelming for people or like yeah. like my brother sent me this really weird um, uh, like bathroom sign where it usually says like men and women and it was said like in the little outline was like the like little skirted one and like the little the little pants one and then like a mermaid a dragon or and something else <laughs> and it said like we don't care just wash your hands and like mm-hmm. i was like that's i can see how you're trying to like be funny but like that's so fucking like that's such a simple simplified like scared way to deal with gender is just to be like you could you could be a monster and we just want you to wash your hands yeah well <laughs> that's that's actually like a real that yeah. that is sort of the approach that I took yeah. when yeah. you first came out was like I don't care I don't if you're green and three inches tall I love you but that is <laughs> yeah. there is a razor's edge of difference between mm-hmm. that and between John Cleese tweeting like, "Well, I identify as a Burmese mountain goat," like, and totally like t- tweeting this in defense, in, or I guess in response to um, J.K. Rowling saying some yeah. hateful shit. Like, <sighs> so the point simply being that the distance between accepting and I'm doing air quotes here, mm. someone for being outside the gender binary because I would love you even if you grew gills and <laughs> and rejecting someone because they're outside the gender binary that difference is very thin if you're yeah. coming at it that way Damn, yeah you know yeah. that is oh, that is so interesting i feel like these are critical tools for us all to develop and i feel like to your the point you you just made it's like you can't just seek to accept and not see. You have to oh, accept yeah. by understanding. Mm. Yeah. But there's a challenge there, right? Because one who has not experienced may not be able to fully understand. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like I wonder about the accessibility of these things. Because like the quote that you laid out, Scout, was like, learn to listen about the things that are important to the people around you and how they speak. Is that, that's, it seems to me that was like, yep, that's it. A summary. And it was like, so it seems like the key here is to just listen more than you speak Mm. and to seek to just understand as fully as you can, accepting that you may never fully understand because you may never because to your point, you can never have the experiences another person has had. If, if, mm-hmm. if gender is as wide as the number of people in the world, then none of us can truly know the gender of another person. Right. But we so can true. seek to understand and accept them without accepting them as something other, but uh, accepting them as something like ourselves. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. well, if you, if you follow that, that line of reasoning to its logical conclusion... Uh, it leads you to the discovery that it's actually quite a false narrative to like a lot of people are like, well, gosh, like, you know, I can relate to other guys because they're guys. And it's like, well, that's actually not true. It's not true. You know, because, uh, you know, we are all Mm -hmm. like your experience is different from mine. Yeah. From guy to guy, you know? Well, also like there's, you know, a, a really big thing that I worked through that I practiced um in (laughs) (laughs) um is this idea that like gender has an endpoint um Mm. or gender 
feels feels the same every day. Even for like, I mean, mm. even for you know, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of cis people that feel that way. Um, there's like no pot of gold at the end of like the gender rainbow. Just like all other things in life that we try to um, get good at or yeah. embrace, there yeah. is no final product. Like this is the th this, is this the is moment. Me, this There's is just me. improving and listening more mm -hmm. and practicing uh, what what you know so far. Yeah, and like being okay with being wrong. I've I've brought up Milo and Raymond so many times, but like my friend Milo like really helped me um, ask some questions in terms of like my understanding of my coming out. And one time he, he and I were talking about it and I was getting all like upset about gender things and it was so hard and everything. And like, he was like, if you feel, how do you feel today? And I was like, mm. he was like, what pronoun would you give yourself today? And I was like, they, them. And he was like, okay, well, and if, if it's she, her tomorrow, that doesn't mean it's like you're they, them today. It's like less valid because like, yeah it's changing all the time and like our relationship mm. to words are changing all the time and it's like exciting and really scary and like in order for, I don't know, just, yeah, that's it. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments. Ass of the week. week. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, that's cute. So, Taylor, yes. who is our ass hat this week? We have a very special selection for ass hat this week. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know um, if any of you saw the article by uh, Joseph Epstein in the Wall Street Journal, uh, but he was kind enough to point out something about uh, the first lady elect, mm. Dr. Jill Biden, uh, which is that she is a doctor. doctor. <laughs> um, he, however, does not seem particularly pleased about that fact. Um, and he, he uh, wrote this uh, op-ed piece uh, in which he advised her in the first line addressing her as kiddo. Yeah. Um, to yeah. remove... Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo. kiddo. Yeah. Kiddo. It's pretty wild. Fuck you. Um, he's basically just saying, you know, you should really not call yourself a doctor because you're not an MD. And I believe at one point in the article he says... Anyone who has not delivered a baby should not call themselves a doctor. Mm -hmm. And, well, okay, I would like to point <laughs> out that... The doctors? Jill Biden has <laughs> delivered a number of babies <laughs> from her vaginal cavity. Seriously. So by that standard, She's she is a, a doctor. doctor. <laughs> she is also a doctor by the normal standards. <laughs> yeah, 50% yeah, of the population... No, probably not 50. A large portion of the population... <laughs> <laughs> Huge surge in doctors nationwide <laughs> as the AMA as Joseph adopts Joseph Epstein standards. Epstein. Yeah. I like I find this thing, I found this to be the most condescending like mm -hmm. garbage. Like this this Joseph Epstein who is a an author, he's like published, he is a professor. Like this is not some like like I don't know podunk you know nope idiot like he's obviously an idiot yeah. but he's not podunk <laughs> but he ain't no podunk he ain't no podunk yeah but like he is this you know person that actually had an opinion piece published in the wall street journal and it is just 
to me, to me, this rang of someone who's who is so whose self esteem is so yeah. low, who yeah. can be threatened so easily that like he's got to own the first lady. <laughs> yeah, he's just got to show her that like, oh really, you're doctor. a doctor. Well, I'm not a doctor, and if I'm not a doctor, you're not a yeah, doctor. Just, I mean, like, it might have been easier for him just to be like, just like, I write, I hate women. Like, that yeah. might have been a little, like, easier. Cause, like, a shorter, shorter piece Just for like sure. a nice little, like, little tidbit. Yeah, it's so, the, 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 it's the kiddo part for me. I know. That's yeah, he so, just got right in there. He just, like, he, he does. He like, gets right in there. Oh, man, oh, man, it's so stupid. <laughs> This yeah, I just have to read this part. Yeah, you gotta read. Yeah. He literally, his second sentence is literally, "Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name?" Doctor Jill Biden sounds a, and feels fraudulent. Not to say a touch comic. Your degree is, I believe, an ED, an EDD, a doctor of education, earned at the University of Delaware through a dissertation with the unpromising title "Student Retention at the Community College Level: Colon Meeting the Students' Needs." Like, could you get more condescending? Also, I believe your doctorate is a doctorate. <laughs> and that your dissertation was about what your doctorate is in, education. <laughs> also, I like when he literally drops, like, the fact that it's a doctor of education. Yeah. It's like, you, yeah. Just, you just did that yourself, buddy. Like, just yeah. say, like, you feel, like, castrated by, like, Oh, a woman yeah. being in power, or cis woman being in power, and like that makes you feel bad about yourself. Like this, this just to me, this reads like I need to go to therapy. Like I have mommy issues. Yeah. Like, don't, I, like yeah, leave, yeah. like leave that out of my sphere. You I know? almost <laughs> feel as if this guy maybe should inspire like a new award because this is <laughs> where you do like a, a condescending character assassination that is really like owning yourself. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and it should be like like. Dweeb of the month award, just like <laughs> I, it's just it's so clear how small this guy is. Yeah. yeah, I was like worried about you know like not finding new like monologues for auditions, but like I'm definitely memorizing this. <laughs> bringing this in. That's oh, oh my gosh, that's so man, what funny. a character. That's awesome. I love Hi, that. my name is Scott Backus. I'll, I'll be, be doing. Is there a doctor in the White House by Joseph Epstein? <laughs> Well, yeah. anyway, congratulations to Joseph Epstein, the littlest man ever published, yeah. for being our <laughs> ass hat of, of the week. week. Good for him. Okay, so for our last segment tonight, we are going to be talking about social media. Um, I think this will be a really interesting conversation. Uh, Scout has social media, right? Yes, I do. I have uh, an Instagram. Ta okay, okay, yeah. Instagram specifically, gotcha. Taylor does not. Not in the traditional sense. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> technically, I think YouTube counts as social media. I think that media. should count, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I have social media to the extent that my will is weak. When my will is strong, I do not have social media. And when my will is weak, I do. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I think yes. this should be a really interesting conversation. Um, so first off, I guess like we'll start with Taylor because I think he is further outside of the norm than 
one might than than uh, other people because forty uh, percent of the U.S. or of the world's population uses social media, which puts Taylor not in, quite in the minority. But the fact that the rest are children and people without internet makes <laughs> uh, makes as yeah an adult with internet. Definitely I'm proud in to be in the sixty percentile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess to start off, just like uh, kind of what made you step away uh, from social media and like more narrowly, I guess, like what personal experiences kind of made you think that you didn't want it as like part of your life. And I guess, I guess how, and we'll specifically talk about like more traditional social media, like Facebook and Twitter mm -hmm. and Instagram rather than, than YouTube right now. Cause yeah. So we'll start there. Sure thing. Well, yeah, for starters, I use YouTube ex very differently than I've ever used uh, Facebook or Instagram, but we can get mm -hmm. to that. Um, yeah. So I uh, deleted my Facebook and Instagram accounts uh, in February of 2018, I think. Um, and I had a couple of reasons for doing it. Uh, it's interesting that we were talking about yoga and uh, practicing exercise and stuff during our Tips for Good because that was sort of the catalyst for me um, for uh, deleting my Instagram specifically. Um, I had kind of weaned off of Facebook naturally because it fucking sucks um, by that point. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Mark. Um, um, He's listening. <laughs> Aw, little Mark. He's so, always listening. He um, really is. <laughs> uh, at, at that time, um, I was sort of at the beginning of my yoga journey specifically. I had started a regular practice of yoga around mid-September of 2017, so I was like five or so months into regular practice. And uh, as is, I think, common with social media users, I had begun to follow accounts that, um, you know, exhibited the interests that I uh, was interested in. So, like, I was following a bunch of yogi Instagrams and stuff like mm. that. And what I realized very quickly was that the complete effect that they were having on me as a person was to make me feel badly about my yoga. <laughs> mm. Um and that, strictly through uh, what you were talking about earlier, Scout, um, compare equals despair. Yeah. You know, I was following people who were professional yogis who'd been doing yoga for years and were doing all sorts of like really impressive looking stands of head sure. and arm varieties um, and felt very badly about my meager downward dogs. And... Um, then I started to like zoom out and look at the rest of what was going on with me. And I realized that that was the, basically the full extent of my Instagram use was by means of comparison mm -hmm. between what I was experiencing in my day-to-day -day life and what I was experiencing of other people's lives as represented on social media. And that is a really key element is that... Um, the, the main reason that I got off of social media was because I realized that I was comparing um, the, the most dissatisfying parts of my life to the most exciting looking parts of other people's lives. Um, and uh, anyone can see that that's a losing battle. Mm. Um, it's really not, not a good venture to, to, to go on. Um, and the, the other thing for me was just there was a social dynamic where... 
you know, there were people that I didn't really want to see their material on Instagram, but I didn't want them to feel badly if I unfollowed them, like if uh, they found out that I, which is just like a sort of a personal feeling that, that I get nervous about making people upset. Um, but so, yeah, I just sort of, when I realized that, that I was committing this very uneven comparison between myself and the lives that I perceived others to be living through their social media presence, I, it was very easy. I decided sort of in one day, I was like, oh, I'm getting rid of this. Um, and like a month went by and I didn't miss it at all. Um, mm. Like there was just no benefit that it had brought to my life that was uh, being, uh, you know, felt the, that I felt the loss of. Um, and And that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Like I just haven't really looked back from that moment. Interesting. I, yeah, I was just going to say one other thing, um, which is that in the months uh, preceding uh, my deleting of those apps, I also, it was, it was I believe, the fall of 2018 and the winter of 2018 were when the Me Too movement uh, was really taking shape and yeah. taking off. And I was dumbfounded that I was getting my, my news about this movement. And in fact, mm. that this movement was taking place on a platform where you could scroll by someone's like incredibly traumatic yeah. and heartfelt testimony about an experience, like one of the worst moments of their life, and then be like, I don't want to read that. Let me check out this cat video that came up next. Yeah. And like that, it, it just felt so out of whack for me. Um, yeah. And so that was another reason it just yeah. occurred to me. That is super interesting. I feel like, so I feel like you touched on like two of the three concerns that I have about social media and the two that I want to talk about, which is like one, the effect that it can have on us as individuals and two, the effect that it has on us as we interact with each other in the world. The third concern is like the overwhelming power and influence that social media companies have. But I don't think we, I want to talk about that too much today just because we've talked about that some on the pod before. Mm -hmm. So, so scout, like I know that you use social media, I yeah. really like your social media usage. I, I enjoy your feed. Um, <laughs> and I find it to be a source of information and education. And I'm like, I'm always constantly clicking whenever I'm on social media, I'm constantly clicking on like your stories to go find the links. Yeah. That, so, so I think like you probably embody on, on your Instagram, like the model of like what someone should do with social media. So I'm curious about like your experience, how you approach it, how you think about it, the benefits that you think it has to you or the drawbacks. So yeah, cool. Um, so my relationship to social media changed mm. from, I mean, I have dumb shit on my social media, but um, <laughs> I share like really stupid shit sometimes, but it changed from, I guess, social nicety um, when I came out because after I came out on my Instagram, which, which like, it's so funny that I was like, my official coming out time was on Instagram, which is like problematic mm. in itself because whatever. Um, I had a lot of people who were following my account that I hadn't spoken to in like years or like since uh. graduating college, like texting me and being like, I'm so proud of you. 
You're so great. I love you so much. Blah, 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 da, 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 da. And, like, right after, like, I came out, I, like, had a full-out, like, panic attack. And I was like, mm-hmm. you have such a percept. I have given you a perception of an experience that is, like, false. Mm-hmm. So I have less of a problem with uh, unfollowing people. I really don't care. <laughs> like, like my, my thing is, like, like, if you and I are not family or if I'm not in communication with you at least once a month, you are not on my Instagram and that's just how it like I feel and I just like when I become overwhelmed by seeing things on Instagram I just remove it and I it, get, it makes me feel like I have a lot more control than the app has on me even though mm-hmm. I don't really know if that's true but yeah. the minute I see something I don't like I just remove it yeah. and like or I just a lot of my information that I get regarding like um, other ways of thinking about uh, protesting and like um, news are from like smaller Instagram Instagram accounts, mm-hmm. um, and I've become a little more careful about following like larger platforms yeah. Yeah. that might say that they like line up with my values or like line up with like what I believe, um, because I find it really overwhelming. Mm. Um, yeah, so I just. I just, I, I definitely don't have the perfect track record when it comes to handling my social media. Um, also, just like gut checking, mm-hmm. I feel like has been like really important to me um, recently when I've gone on Instagram. And like, if when I read one of those like nice little infographs that have like a part yeah. of a headline. I really make sure I like do my research before posting it or like Mm -hmm. I don't just post it because everyone else is around me. Yeah. Um, Like I've gotten into some interesting conversations about uh, the Me Too movement and how I I purposefully did not share any experiences I had because I had a really strong opinion about how I would feel if I shared that information Mm -hmm. and the fact that I was feeling pressure from myself, not from anyone else doing what they needed to do. Um, yeah. and, and expressing themselves the way that they needed to individually. Um, I, I was surprised at how much I was affected by like the masses doing something altogether, which yeah. was positive and which, which was cathartic and brought up mm-hmm. conversations. But I just need, I just need to be, when I'm on Instagram, I'm like constantly <laughs> gut checking. <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> how does this make me feel? Uh, is this, why is this interesting? If I think it's interesting, I'll research it or like look up a YouTube video. I won't just mm-hmm. be like, oh, cool, I like the graphs of this, or mm-hmm. but unless it's like funny stuff about, you know, things that I find funny. Sure. Because then I know, like that gut check, I'm like, I know that I think that's funny. But yeah. <laughs> that's an <laughs> easy gut check when you laugh. I know humor. <laughs> so, so, yeah. That, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think like, there's a there's there's a reason why these things are complicated. Like, um, mm. not to not to like call Taylor's experience weird, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> or or easy necessarily. But yeah. like, but like, to many of us, these things are complicated because we do f- get value from these platforms. Like, like for a lot of people, it starts as entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Or it starts as, or the experience of it, li- literally to the, you know, to this day, is, is, um, the way that you communicate, the way that you broadcast, yeah. the way that you exhibit yourself, um, and you show the world around you, you know, your world, um, and like, I think I think these this thing really does have 
value to us. And I think pretending like it doesn't, unless it truly doesn't to you as an individual, like in Taylor's case, um, is like underselling how this, uh, you know, beast kind of like takes hold because it is valuable. Like, and, and not yeah. to say, not to say that like you or I and using social media have somehow been duped or like bought into this like horrible thing um, or anything like that. Yeah. But like what we do see is that from the li relatively limited sociological and psychological research that constantly comparing the, you know, the worst parts of your life to the best parts of everyone else's, as Taylor talked about, has a really harmful personal effect. Um, yeah. And so like being a really active archivist hmm. of your feed is like, is really critical. Yeah. And I, and, and that's kind of why I held you up as an example scout is like, you seem to be doing this in the way that is a responsible user of social media, which I think mm -hmm. is a really high bar. Like seeing yes. something on social media and going and checking whether it's true is the exception rather than the rule. I mean, one study from um, the Sloan School of Management at, at the university or at, uh, at MIT found that, that falsehoods on social media spread uh, are 70% more likely to be retweeted on Twitter um, mm. than the truth. Holy and God. that they reached uh, 1,500 people six times faster than the truth. Um, and <clears throat> like we see the effects of disinformation and misinformation around us all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and not only like, not only individuals leveraging, like, I think, I think we come at this from a lot of different ways. Like one is, is the accidental harmful effects of, of these platforms, like accidentally spreading, like accidentally spreading misinformation yeah. mm -hmm. or accidentally only exhibiting the best parts of your life and <laughs> potentially having a negative effect on the people around you. But then there's like the active uh, manipulation of these platforms, like yeah. like specific attempts by, uh, and successful attempts by like the Russian government to sow uh, disunity and distrust and, and mm -hmm. things in the United States. Like like one of the documented things is, is exploiting um, the like inherent kind of racial tensions in the United States. And the way they did that was not by just going out there and, you know, making a bunch of fake stuff. Yeah. They went out there and made a bunch of groups so that people that saw themselves as like each other could all get together. So it wasn't just like the white supremacists whose egos they were stroking. It was also the, you know, like like different African American groups and and things like that because their goal was was not all they were doing was using the leverage that already existed in our society via the platform of social media right. to to drive a wedge. Wow, yeah. <sighs> Holy shit. What, yeah. One interesting thing you point out, Miguel, was that um, you know a lot of people, <clears throat> in terms of the value one derives from social media um, and sort of a ramp into that being its entertainment value, and I think that's a key uh, yeah. element to the whole thing is... Yeah. Fundamentally, uh, social yeah. media is a form of entertainment. Mm. And so uh, what I've been struggling with recently 
is how to make sense of all of the activism that takes place on social media. Yes. Um, and I mean, it's it's just kind of like a, a, a way to characterize like the, the strange feeling I have about it is that example of like a Me Too post followed by like a cat meme or something where it just doesn't conflate that those two things should occupy the same space. Space, yeah. Um, and so like... The fact that, like, most people get their news from social media or even, like, you know, alternative news sources on social media. I know, babe, you pointed out that you get some of your news from these, like, smaller uh, social media accounts. And, yeah. like, um, you know, you guys have talked about on the pod before this sort of false idea that people have that if uh, a news story is outside the mainstream, it is yeah. more legitimate. Yeah. You know? I mean... QAnon, hello. Oh my god! Um, but, uh, but it's it's the storm. It's just so easy for that sort of misconception to take hold in an entertainment space, yeah. and it's it's getting harder and harder to find the line between news and entertainment, whether it's social mm-hmm. media or not. Um, but I feel like you know that's one of the areas where it's just so social media has a way of making it very easy for us to engage dishonestly uh Mm. and and to engage with those like for me like the worst parts of myself are the parts that are sort of plugged into social media Mm. um and uh, it just seems like one of the areas that that is borne out is is in this conflating of news and entertainment yeah in social media sure yeah It, it is so interesting that you're like touching on those specific things. Like the things that I heard in that comment were, um, you know, like disengage, like engaging, like dishonestly and poorly, uh, is like the norm. The worst parts of yourself make their way onto social media in like the way you interact with it. Mm-hmm. And that it is like a form of entertainment that it is so easy to get wrapped up in. And the thing is like, that is literally, um, as you know, the business model of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you, if you, if you go and like read social media skeptics or ethicists or, or like Tristan Harris, who is, mm-hmm. who is like recently came out with uh, the documentary, the social dilemma and is like an activist in this space and has founded a couple of nonprofits on this. Like that is exactly what he describes is like the whole, first of all, the whole point of social media is not to do literally anything except keep you engaged. Correct. Like, if you think about it, it, like, that is the only outcome. And the thing is, like, the only limitations on that are, uh, like, three things. How good your machine learning algorithm is, how, how much processing power you have, and your access to, date, to the data of the people that are, that are interacting with your platform. Mm. Mm, yeah. And, like... At this point, their algorithm is great. Like the machine learning they use, which, which to like the whole thing about machine learning is whatever you optimize it on, it will do whatever it takes. It is the, it is the most ruthless actor in the universe. It will do whatever it takes to reach that optimal goal. Right. Like, yeah. like the, the example um, when it comes to the, of the, like the flaw of optimization is like, say you make a machine that its one purpose is to create paper clips. And the instruction you give that machine is to optimize paper clips. 
it will literally consume the earth optimize and making right. paper clips. It will turn everything yeah. that it can into paper clips. And so it, it passes no judgment on what it's doing. It yeah. is simply optimizing your attention space. Yeah. That is the whole thing. And and then and then it's just processing power, which is quickly becoming virtually limitless. Like mm. to the point where you no longer have to segment people by averages. It's no longer, you know, we're gonna take males thirty five to forty and they like beer, so we're gonna try to sell them yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah. It's right. like, no, no, we're gonna take Eric who likes an IPA mm. and he doesn't like the advertisement to be too fancy or glitzy and that's right. what'll keep him engaged Whoa. on this platform. And and then and then there was and then the final thing is access to data which is normally our only the social media company's only access to data is like our interaction with it but as they become integrated as they get data as they buy data from other sources as mm -hmm. they as they have um, you know uh, devices in your home, your smartwatch, your Amazon uh, Alexa, mm -hmm. your Google Home, the, the, the line that they can trace to what you want next and what will, not necessarily you want to want next, but what you will pay attention to next can right. be perfectly drawn. Yeah. It's like, it like gets close to like the level of like, controlling your behavior and to your last point taylor that like it appeals uh to your worst things it's like of course it does all of our all of as as human beings like almost exclusively our the easiest thing to do is is almost never the best thing to do mm. and mm. like is it go for a run or is it donuts well if if you know like Obviously, the easier thing is donuts. And if you have your whole house set up where you have to walk by the donuts every time, every, like all the way to the door to go for a run, right. there's almost no way you're not going to have a donut on the way. Right, <laughs> and absolutely. And like that is the whole, the whole setup. Well, it's an interesting predicament that we're in living in, you know, uh, compared to the rest of human history, an incredibly luxurious time. When we don't have to worry about shelter or warmth or getting enough water or getting enough calories to make it through the day and survive. Well, most of us don't. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the yeah, people yeah. who are sitting in this conversation. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so what we spend our time doing is trying to ignore the scarcity voice in our brain that's being <laughs> like, you need to get this while you can because yeah. it's, you know, our you know inner primate trying to survive. Um and luring us into like what we need to do now is is do the best version of that thing yeah you know not the most available one yeah um and and th there's a great um podcast called rabbit hole that oh explores it's sort of the way in it's a it's a whole podcast series about social media and the way in is is sort of tracing this guy's descent into like a white nationalist rabbit hole oh, interesting and it's not yeah. he's cool. not a Reporter going into a white sure. nationalist. Yeah, yeah. It's a reporter who found a guy who was like, I became a white nationalist from no, YouTube. I'm not, but um, yeah, yeah. And they they talked to a, a developer who worked for YouTube who talks about exactly what you were just saying, Miguel. Um, saying like, you know, our entire purpose is to keep people engaged for as long as possible. And the way to do that that we found is to give them what they want to see, which yeah. leads us to the discussion of the feedback loop that you get. And you guys touched yeah. on that a little bit when you had Joe on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, they show you what they think you want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you end up with is this very, very tight, impenetrable bubble of information. And, and let me be clear about something. I'm not immune to this just because I don't have an Instagram or a Facebook. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. I, yeah. I, th- I get the same stuff because I'm not taking the time to, you know, look at news in a uh, incognito window on my phone. Yeah, you know, sure. as Joe suggested, like, you know, and YouTube knows what I want to see yes. when I go oh, yeah. on there. You know, yep. so it's it's not like just deleting your Instagram is the answer. Yeah, one of the reasons that I have been recurringly trying to step away from social media with with mixed success, like some like. There was a while there where I was away for a couple of months, and then I rejoined for a specific purpose to mm-hmm. uh, to spread some specific things, and then I found myself like sucked in more regularly, mm. and so I like deleted the apps, and like that that helps some, um, but it's really it's really interesting the way that like my habits are now set up around using social media, like yeah. what do you do? Like there are there's no Reader's Digest on the next to the toilet. Like, what do you do? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, which is interesting. Um, but to your point, Taylor, like that is one of the reasons for me that's most motivating to step away is I don't think that my brain is exceptional. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't yeah. think that I am exempt from the potential to be sucked into something bad. Or nefarious or yeah. wrong. Absolutely. I truly like I truly do not think that like uh you know that that there's anything about me that makes this not work on me. In fact, I know the opposite to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like to me it's a matter of trying to protect myself that I try to stay away. I think Instagram is probably the least offensive of, of all of those cuz I ex- like if you don't browse, you pretty much exclusively get content from your crew. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. hope it stays that way. Yeah. Um, what, I'm curious about, ju- it just occurred to me, Mike's, you're a pescatarian. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, is it, I, I assume that, I mean, to my knowledge, you haven't had difficulty maintaining your pescatarian habits. Am I sure. wrong about that? No, you're right. You're right. So I wonder what the difference is. Like, was there yeah. some compelling reason um, that was so powerful to you mm. that made it easy for you to give up? Con- the consumption of land animals? No, I, I find I <laughs> this is this may be a character flaw, but I personally find uh, good reasons pretty unmotivating. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. so, so like, then what what was it the exactly? better the better angels of my nature do not win. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're off seeing a movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and to me, it's it's all about the life hack of of unavailability. Like, sure. just don't have meat in your house, and you won't eat meat. Simple as that. So, like, okay, yeah. interesting, interesting. And that's much harder to parse out uh, in the modern world because yeah. you have a phone. Yeah. Exactly. And it's not and like gonna pull you it only have pocket. a smartphone for Instagram. You also have a smartphone for monitoring your investments and looking at Google Maps and making a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's about, it's about so much more than, you know, excising it from your life. It's about excising it from your habits, um, which is like always harder. Mm. Yeah. Maybe you should get yourself a Reader's Digest. Yeah, well, I I, the... I do sw- I switch to reading my Kindle app instead. Nice. Which nice. is good. But uh, 
but it's it's not the habit yet. Sure. Right. Like, like at this point, I still click around on my phone for a minute, thinking of what to look at. But but the thing is, it's amazing how strong of a hold this has over our lives. Like, they've tapped deeply into our brains and our and our attention and what we need. And I think I I am not confident that we as like hyped up apes have quite the skills to compete with uh, with you know Google and and their machine learning algorithms and things like that. Yeah. So I think it really is about like taking concerted steps to control the way you interact with these things. Scout, I think your method sounds very successful. I mean, um, I, now I'm just thinking of like all the <laughs> my ads <laughs> I get and like how when I like brainlessly like click on it, like yeah. the app. Or yeah. like when I have deleted the app, I go and my brain's like, but where is app? Yes. Yes. Where is fun game time? <laughs> like, like. <laughs> My, I think the most important thing for me is that there is nothing wrong with um, engaging with social media, so long as you acknowledge that it is one hundred percent entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And if you engage with it, engage with it purposefully in that way. Um, and so, like, that is to say, you know, one of the big problems. Um, like social media has played such a role in the division that has sort of been sown in our country over the past 10 years or so because it's so easy to be hateful against people with whom you disagree and organize with people that you with whom you agree on Mm -hmm. places like Facebook that I think it's it's divided us in a way that is really dangerous Um, and I think the reason for that is because it is being ignored that it is an entertainment thing well i don't think it's the i mean this just goes back to like how you use literal social media social media i think it's kind of like saying like social media is the problem is not the problem like Mm. i could sit here and be like man i wish jk rowling didn't have a twitter no i'm like no i wish jk rowling wasn't fucking transphobic and that's what i like and i feel like that division you're talking about is just people specific individuals deciding to use their their Instagram to like post hateful shit or like uninformed uh, information. I, I think you're wrong about that. I think that the, the point I'm making is that if you met J.K. Rowling, she would not be like, she would, I, 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 I would wager, not knowing J.K. Rowling, that she would not say some hateful transphobic shit to you. But because of the opportunity that is available on social media, you know, she has given a megaphone to millions of people to be able to say something that is incredibly hurtful to a majority or a, a, a large number of those people. Yeah. And so it's just so easy for people to do that. You know, 46% of the population or whoever voted for Trump a second time. It's not like 46% of the population of the United States is a bunch of hateful crackpots. You know, it's just easy to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about and who under social media less circumstances would never say what they're saying to all of those people. Or they would find a way to exercise those specific like ideals that they have. 
Like, that's why I think... Like, talking about, like, microaggressions is super important. And, mm. like, stopping those... Stopping when, like, someone says, like, some, like, not okay shit before it becomes uh, J.K. Rowling or, or John Cleese saying uh, yes. inappropriate stuff. I hear you. But if J.K. Rowling is in a room and says something transphobic, the... Um, discomfort she's going to experience if someone calls her out in that room is going to have a much greater impact on her uh, relationship to trans people than the fact that she is being retweeted and like in a, in a public space in a public forum it's it's just not an it's it's not a place that invites careful consideration or like social pressure on a one-to-one -one level it's really like like, so, um, Jonathan Haidt is, uh, like a philosopher and psychologist, um, and I listened to a, an episode of, uh, the Sam Harris Making Sense podcast, where they had a conversation, and he described social media as connectivity in which we are communicating, not privately, but in front of an audience, and the audience rates the communication. Mm -hmm. By which I simply mean to say that, you mm -hmm. know, with my example where you and J.K. Rowling meet, and she you guys talk and she doesn't say some awful transphobic shit to you. That's really nice. In the situation that exists where she tweets some awful transphobic shit and everyone gets to decide, like, it's, 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 she's not saying it to one person. You know what I mean? She's broadcasting it out and people are rating how they feel about it. So like, well, and also even more importantly than that, it's getting specifically shown to the people who will be most uh, happy to see it and most angry to see it mm. and not shown to the other people as much. Mm. True. Because it will specifically be shown to the people that will like it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the people that will comment on it, it and say, fuck you. And, and, and therefore, it is like, it is an ingrained part of the platform that makes, that gives a megaphone, not, just, not to everyone equally, because that's just not true. It gives a megaphone to the people that will say the things that keep you as a user on there, that keeps the most users on there the most. Yeah, I see what you yes. mean. Yeah. And that, so yeah. it will be the things that you hate to see and the things that you love to see and nothing oh, else. Damn, you're right. Yeah, right. totally. I, um, I was just looking through your, um, your sort of resources section in your notes, Miguel, and there's a study at NYU where they, found, they, they did a sort of an analysis of half a million tweets and found that each tweet that contained a moral or emotional word, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's virality is the term they use, is increased by 20%, which just yeah. goes to the point you're making yeah. where, I you mean, know, the most inflammatory stuff, whether you agree or disagree with it, is the stuff that's going to get the most play. Well, that's how, like, Trump got a lot of, like, support because he would say yeah. horrific things like, they're beheading your children at the border or stuff mm -hmm. like that, like that causes you to have an emotional reaction to it. But the point yeah. is that, that with, in, in, a, in a social media free environment, um, that platform specifically doesn't exist. And the millions of people who are exposed to that idea that if they believe it's a possibility that children are being beheaded at the border, that's very scary. If you, if you are under the impression that that's possible, then it's very terrifying. They, they're not exposed to that idea, you know? And importantly also, it's mediated through 
the assumption that it matters whether it's true or not, rather than the assumption yeah. that it matters whether you like it or not. Mm. So like yeah. if, if someone were to write a story, Trump thinks this, like it's not like you would put a check mark on your newspaper. You know, you would you would the oh. the whole story is idea like the point is, is it true or not? Right. And then you get to decide that rather than upvote or downvote and then that is the that is the way that you interact with it. You're right, Taylor. It, it is very much like entertainment. It's like, it's just, you know, we're not interacting with this information as information. We're interacting with it as emotional stimuli. Absolutely. Totally. And to use J.K. Rowling as an example again, that's not news. That is news yeah, of nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is a yeah. that is a, an individual's opinion that nobody benefits from knowing. Yeah. It's not something that occurred in the world that matters to that, yeah. that that like makes a difference in the lives of people, except for the fact that it upsets you when you find out. Yeah. And so it's like, how could that? What? Why? Why is there any space for that in someone's life? Yeah. This is my goal, but if I can get one person to delete their Instagram from listening to this podcast, I'll be very happy. Even if it's one of you guys. And now to finish out our episode, we'll give our highlights. So, Taylor, uh, what's your highlight this week? Well, I am really looking forward to our family gathering uh, on the 19th. Um, mm. Scout and I are here in, uh, in Northern Virginia at their parents' house. And as I mentioned earlier, we have quite a bit of our family who live within a short drive from here. And um, because of our fears and concerns about possibly exposing those we love to the coronavirus, we have been pretty strict about our visitations, uh, which is pretty agonizing given the proximity to yeah. loving family members. But uh, coming up here over the weekend, we're going to be gathering in a park to have a little outdoor Christmas celebration, socially distanced, and uh, it's, it's going to be really nice, and I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody. It's going to be tough not to give hugs and kisses, but... I'm glad we're able to do it. It'll be really nice. Be really so that's my highlight. What about you, Scout? You know, we've been watching, like, a lot of, like, classic Christmas movies recently. Mm. And, like, at, like another thing, like, my therapist was talking about mastering. He mm. was like, maybe you could try mastering, like, finding, a, like, very specific movies you want your parents to watch. Or, like, a show that you think would, like, bring you and your parents together. And, like, we watched Home Alone 2 last night, and I mastered the shit out of uh, watching that. <laughs> nice. And I can't wait to keep mastering simple, simple, like, tiny, joyful tasks like that and not feeling like I have to check the joy box for, like, writing fucking King Lear or whatever. Mm. Um, my highlight uh, is probably is very similar to both of yours, actually. I'm just, like, super excited about Christmas time. Um, We've been watching Christmas movies a lot, um, interspersed with violent movies to you know give this season an edge. Hell yeah! yeah. Um, and like wrapping presents and just super excited to to see you guys and yeah everybody. So so fucking excited. I know. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.